Uh, hey folks, Damien here. Um, as I was editing the interview, I realized that there are some portions of the, um, the episode which do touch on sexual assault. So this is sort of a content warning, content notice that that topic does come up uh, in my conversation with Adrian, um, particularly in the Spitboy portion of the interview. Um, so at roughly the one hour, four minute mark um, of the show, in particular, there are there's a couple of brief mentions beforehand, but um, at the one hour four minute mark of the show, it is a, a topic that comes up and is explored in a little bit of detail. So I just want to give you sort of a content trigger warning, um, just to let you know that that does come up, and feel free to skip ahead a few minutes if that is something you wish to do. Um, yeah, just looking out and. Anyways, uh, with that being said, enjoy the show. Thanks. Night of the Livid Punks is a podcast chat show dedicated to life, love, punk, anarchy, and other fun stuff like that. This is hosted by Damien Inbred, and it's a presentation of Doom Society Radio. And we're supported by listeners like you. All three of you. Enjoy.
Hey everyone, welcome to episode 2 of Night of Livid Punks, a presentation of Doom Society Radio, um, my little chit-chat podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hope you enjoyed the first one with, uh, with my good friend Jeremy Stone. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, please do. Um, so this time around, very, very stoked. Very, very stoked. Um, I've got as my guest the former vocalist of one of the most influential and important bands in uh, 90s DIY punk history, uh, Spitboy, from the East Bay. Um, she was also a frequent collaborator with Os Rotten later on in that decade, um, former columnist for Maximum Rock and Roll, former columnist for Profane Existence, uh, huge Taylor Swift fan and all-around amazing human being, Adrian Stone. Um, yeah, I guess she heard, um, she heard last... The last episode, the first episode, uh, with with her partner Jeremy, and she was so stoked that she reached out and said, "Hey, I want to be on your show," and that was perfect because I wanted to get her on my show as soon as humanly possible. So here we are. Uh, we tried to do this last week, but unfortunately, um, health concerns came up. Um, you know, she was f- feeling ill, and given the whole COVID thing, uh, it was probably best just to lay low and hold off until she was feeling better. So anyways, uh, before we get started, I would, I may as well get the plugs out of the way now while I have you all captive. Wahahaha. Um, so I think, I think probably the Patreon page is probably just going to disappear. Uh, lost a follower, um, down to three, which works out to about, I'm making about 15 bucks a month on Patreon. It's not really, really doing it. And uh, I don't have the patience to actually keep up and put up uh, with the project. I'm, I'm, I'm really bad at Patreon. And so I'm probably going to get rid of that. But if I am looking for financial donations, if you're able to kind of help keep the show going and all that good stuff, keep the whole Doom Society project going, um, the main show, Doom Society Radio, and zines and and records and whatever else i decide to do under the doom society umbrella all cost money so if you can help out a little bit um here and there you are more than welcome to uh send you know send pocket change to uh through paypal uh at doom society radio at gmail.com is the paypal address so yeah, forget about the Patreon. Patreon's done, basically. I think I'm going to delete it later on this week or next week or something like that when I get around to it. Um, I've got a T public page with a bunch of print-to-go shirts. Um, obviously not as high quality as if I were to get them screen printed, but uh, the plus side, I keep my costs down. Anyways, tpublic.com slash user slash doomsocietypunks. I've got 10th Anniversary Doom Society designs, some Coffee Punks designs, some Anarchist designs. Uh, you can get that shit on shirts, mugs, wall art, notebooks, phone cases, I guess, and other cool stuff. If you are Instagram users, you can follow Doom Society Radio at Doom Society Radio. You can follow my gig photography page at Doom Society Shots. Um... Follow me on Twitter if you want. If you want to watch me dunk on people or, you know, repost possum pics often, uh, that's at Doomed Punks. That's P-U-N-X with an X, because punks. Anyway, um, 
So that's that's about it. All that out of the way. Um, let's have less of me and more of Adrian here without without any further ado here's my conversation I had with Adrian Stone doing well um i have moments where i am trying to tell like okay am i getting sick am i sick am i sick and so far nothing's happened you knock on wood thank goodness yeah i haven't come down with anything i haven't had you know any severe symptoms of anything um but you know because i work uh uh in a grocery store then i'm around Lot, a lot of people so it's a big concern at the moment yeah are, are people masking up you know at work we're all required to wear masks okay. and then um the hard part is that the customers some of them a lot of them do and a lot of them are very mindful but 
I think that the longer this goes on, the more desperate people get for any kind of human contact. Oh yeah. And so, yeah. So then they'll, they'll start walking towards you being like, Oh, I need help with something. And I'm backing up being like, I can help. Please stay right there. I can help you from this distance. I will point and show you where things are, but they just want to get close. They want to be near somebody. They want that contact. And I think people are really struggling with that. And you work in a health food store, right? Yeah. I work for a independent grocery store. I'm the health and beauty buyer, um, for a small mom and pop grocery store. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm definitely right in the thick of it. Yeah. I was going to say in that line of work and particularly in that department, um, I know that from my experience, at least people aren't really, um, customers already aren't great with personal space, uh, physical distance and stuff. So I imagine it's a little interesting right now. Oh yeah. And they, they come in and they're, you know, there's certain things that they're just frantic to have that we just, you know, nobody has like rubbing alcohol, hand sanitizer, you know, like people are just like, I need this, I need this. So then they're kind of freaking out. And then it's just, you know, it makes for a very kind of intense environment, but we're just trying to deal with it the best we can. Yeah, of course. Um, okay. So one thing that I've been, I've been doing with the, uh, with the podcast so far is I've been having the previous guest come up with a question to ask the upcoming guest. Um, oh. Now, maybe, <laughs> maybe this is cheating a little bit, seeing as you live with my previous guest, um, yes. but I'm going to ask this, uh, this question anyway. Okay. Um, Jeremy and I were chatting last time about how we had our heart broken by a certain frontman for a certain band called Amoebics. And so Jeremy's question for the next guest, i.e. you, was what's your Amoebics story and how did you react to the news about the Baron? Um, So I have a funny Amoebics story. I love Um, it already. (laughs) So Spitboy was playing a show in England and, you know, we were meeting all these people there. We were with Citizen Fish, like playing a show with Citizen Fish. And so we were meeting all their friends. And so I meet this uh, very nice person named Spider. And I'm like, hi, Spider. I'm Adrian. We shake hands. We're running around. We're laughing. We're having fun. And I'm wearing my punk rock vest with all the studs and the buttons. And it has a big amoebics patch on the back. And you know, so then we all end up at some house where we're hanging out, you know, after the show and, and partying and stuff. And and I'm, you know, wandering through this house and I wander into Spider's room and I'm looking around and I go and I look at him and I go, hey, I, I see you have all these Amoebix posters. I was like, do you like Amoebix? And he gives me this really odd look. Uh-huh. And he was like, um, yeah, I played drums for them and I was like oh yeah so you (laughs) saw the patch on the back of my jacket then I like amoebics hi this is embarrassing I had no idea like and I mean it was just charming and funny and you know and we just laughed about it but I just you know yeah I just met someone who was very nice happened to be named spider I made zero connection that Mm -hmm. it was from spider from amoebics but 
Um, but yeah, then he and I ended up becoming friends and Spitboy did the tour of Europe. And then I came back to England and I stayed at his house and I would call him Uncle Spider. And he, um, he actually took me on this amazing, I kept begging him to take me on a motorcycle ride. Oh, nice. And so, yeah. And so then he was like, okay, are you ready for your motorcycle ride? And I was like, yes. And I thought he was going to take me around the block. And he took me out on this gorgeous two-hour-long ride into the English countryside. Where, oh, like, wow. Yeah, just gorgeous, out in the middle of nowhere, just on this motorcycle and just having this amazing adventure. And dogs would come running out of fields and chase and bark after us. And it was gorgeous and amazing. And and I'll never forget it. So, oh my God, that's like something out of a storybook. Yeah, except, yeah. Except crusty. Except super crusty punk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, how 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 did you um, find out about what happened with uh, with the Rob? Yeah, you know, I started. It was on social media. Is where right. I heard about it first, and it's so so disappointing like heartbreaking because yeah like I love this band I love this music and I've met the other folks that were in the band and they were so sweet and nice and then to just be this one person take these good memories of this music and the the role that it played in in all of our lives, anybody who was into Amoebics and into Crust and, you know, like yeah. just enjoyed that band so much and to have all of that just tainted. Like, yeah, it's absolutely. It's so disappointing, you know? Yeah, like I haven't even been able to listen to the band since I found out um, what his what is actually in his heart. And... It's rough because, I mean, like I was saying to Jeremy on the last episode, like for close to 20 years now, like Amoebics has been my band. Just like so many people I know consider Amoebics to be like their band and just such a huge part of myself. Um, yeah. It's, it fucking sucks. Oh, yeah. So disappointing. So heartbreaking. And just so shocking. Like, yeah. I would have never in a million years been like, yep, that's where this person's coming from, ever. Yeah. It's like, like, what what happened to him? Like, yeah. It makes me want to sit down. I don't know him. It mm-hmm. makes me want to sit down with him and just be like, what happened to you? Where did things go horribly wrong in your life that this is where you ended up? How did you become this person? Because well, something fucked you up along the way. Oh, seriously. I think that this is sort of a prime example of what happens when when someone discovers the internet and the the poisonous aspects of the internet i e the the conspiracy theories and and all the weird dark wormholes and doesn't have a sense of critical thinking probably due to being isolated on an island in the middle of nowhere um, yeah. and only having this you know this glowing box that is your outlet to the world and just discovering the wrong things and then just going with it and just as a result shoving uh, throwing everything that you once claimed to believe in the the toilet it seems to happen with a lot of people of of a certain age when they first just discover the internet and don't develop critical thinking skills 
or something. Or I don't ways know, to navigate the internet to yeah. go, okay, you know, like, I, here's all this information, and I have to look at it in a way that X amount is, is true, X amount is completely fabricated, and then there's, like, a lot of opinion, you know, like, yeah. that's not fact, it's just people's thoughts and opinions, and how to navigate that without being swayed or influenced too strongly totally and um i think an important lesson is that just because something is an alternative source of information doesn't mean that it's correct yeah alternative does not always mean correct when i was growing up alternative media was closer to correct because corporate media was not showing all sides of an issue and so we had indie media and stuff like that that was actually journalism based but nowadays it's so different yeah and i think it's hard to like with a band that's so well loved it's like you want to be able to separate it like go okay here's this person who at this point in his life is in some crazy space that i cannot and will not support Mm -hmm. but here's this band and this music and these words that still are so powerful and so amazing and so incredible. And how do you separate those two so that you can still love and appreciate and enjoy what was created back in the day and is such a strong part of you and Mm -hmm. yet not support and be a part of where that person is at now? You know what I mean? Like how do you make that separation? And I think that's the sort of thing that is really up to the individual. Like, I don't think any of us have the answers, and I don't think there is a correct answer. I think it's it's just up to every person themselves where they draw that line. Yeah. It's like, I really like Tupac. Like, I like his music. And he's, uh, I believe, convicted rapist. Like, he was convicted of rape. Yeah. And how do I listen to his music and be like oh my gosh i mean i could start singing it right now Mm -hmm. and then knowing that the person did this horrific unforgivable thing you know like and it's that you know like that push and pull of this appreciation for something that you know this artistic creation that that resonates or you know touches you versus the human person who's so flawed and fucked up that created it, you know, like, and how do you separate those two, you know? Yeah. And again, I think that's just up to the individual. And I, I think for myself, I will probably eventually go back to listen to Omedics might not wear the shirts anymore. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've spent so much money on the records and yeah. And you, I'm sure you put them on and there's still a part of you that's just going to be like, Yes. This yes. is amazing. It's still amazing. I will probably still cry at the same songs and probably for the same reasons. Yeah. And but then I understand not wanting to walk around wearing an Amoebic shirt because now that might mean something different to people. Yeah. You know, like yeah. they might associate that more with where Rob stands now versus where what it might have meant in the past, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, that's... Uh, that's a that's a weird thing that came up over the last year. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, heartbreaking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, sad. 
Yeah. So let's uh, let's get a bit of a quick introduction, even though we're already like ten minutes in. But uh, <laughs> for the for the one or two people out there who may not know who Adrian Stone is, why don't oh, you I'm sure tell us a little bit about vast vast amounts of people. Um, so do you, do you want like punk rock history? Yeah, if you want, absolutely. Okay. Um, so I got into the punk scene when I was 16 and then I started doing my own zine called too far. And then I started working for maximum rock and roll. And that was actually when I moved out of my parents' house, I actually moved into the maximum rock and roll house. Oh, nice. And Where was it? Back? Where it was it was, then? Um, in Noe Valley in San Francisco. Okay. And it was Tim Yohannan and Martin Sprouse and Jane Guskin were my roommates. Um, and then I got kicked out. Oh. And I, yeah, totally. <laughs> Let me guess, was, Tim kicked you out, right? Tim totally kicked me out. Of course I was he did. <laughs> 18 and completely out of control. Um, but, um, and then I lived at the New Method, which was a punk house, uh, punk warehouse space. And then um, after a few years, I got involved, like I started singing for the band Spit Boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and did that. And then I was writing for Maximum. I've written for Profane Existence and Slug and Lettuce. And uh, then I moved to New York, no, Virginia. And okay. I was the f- first singer for Alabama Thunder Pussy. And I played one show with them. Nice. And then, yeah, that was fun. And then I moved to New York. So then they got um, a different singer. I think his name was Johnny. Um, and then I moved to New York and that's when I got involved with Osrotten, um, and was like a part-time singer with Osrotten. Um, and then I don't think I haven't done any band stuff since Osrotten. I'm like, hold on. Have I, <laughs> have I been in a band? I think, since I think Osrotten? you did some backup think... vocals on a Jello Biafra album. Yeah, I did backup vocals for with jello and then um uh but yeah i haven't really done that much um part of it is i came down with uh, tinnitus which is oh yeah yeah and i have it pretty bad and so um i can't do music and i can't go to shows you know like i just can't see live music the way I would like to. Um, and so that's had a huge impact on that's, what I've been able to do. Ouch. That's kind of one of my, one of my big fears. Oh gosh. Yeah. That, do you yeah. have it at all? Like, do you have any um, little ringing? There's been a little bit of ringing here and there over the last couple of years, but nothing super concerning, but there is the odd time. So I'm sort of keeping an eye on that. And I've over the last five years or so, I've finally done the smart thing and been wearing um, earplugs to shows. And yeah, because uh, I'm, you know, I'm not even 35 yet. And it's like, this is kind of ridiculous. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's definitely for those people that don't know, tinnitus is ringing in your ears and there's no cure for it. So once you have it, that's it. And, um, like there was one time when I was walking through the house and I heard something ringing and it was so loud that I thought an alarm was going off 
Oh, Jesus then, Christ. Totally. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, hold on. It's my ear. It's just the ringing in my ear. And then it subsided and wasn't as loud, but I can't let it get to where it's permanently like that loud and impacts Holy my hearing. Shit. That's really scary. I know. Could you even imagine? I can't eat it. They actually prescribe um, like sedatives for people that have it really bad because it is so disconcerting and, and really impacts on people's mental health so badly that they just have to sedate the person. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I don't want to get that bad. Yeah, no doubt. God. Yeah. So earplugs, people. Earplugs. Yeah. If if there's one thing that people get out of this entire interview, it's earplugs. Earplugs. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we laugh about it, but no, seriously, earplugs. Earplugs, yeah. We're serious. Yeah. 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 So pre-Spitboy life, um, getting into punk when you're, you said you were 16? Yeah. Yeah. So um, where whereabouts did you grow up? And uh, what was it like being um, punk in that area at that time? Uh, I grew up in Pleasanton, California, and it okay. was a pretty small town. And so, uh, you know, it. I'm sure for some folks, yes. Okay. Um, but being, it just has a very Disney-esque name. Oh, totally. Pleasanton, <laughs> yeah. But I lived there before the mall was built, and so it was more a very small town and before it got heavily developed and so being different in a town like that was really not easy i remember my friend leslie and i we were the two punk rockers in our high school and we were walking across the lawn area of the high school that was like right in the middle of all the buildings and it was during lunch or something we're just walking to like our lockers or something and all of a sudden, people just started screaming, you know, freaks. And they would yell mod. They thought that mod was like an insult. I'm not sure where that came from. That's a random thing to hear. Totally. They'd be like, <laughs> you mod, you fucking mod, freaks, fucking freaks. Like, it felt like the entire school screaming at us. It was insane. It was like at least 100 people just started yelling at us. And so we, at first we were looking around just like, oh my God, this is crazy. And then we just kept walking and then we started doing the queen wave. We were like, oh yeah, totally. We're like, well, <laughs> they're just screaming at us. So we're just going to do the queen wave back. Like, just yes, we embrace are. Embrace it. Embrace it. We are the freaks. That's true. Yep. What, you know, like, sure. We're mods. If that's what you want to <laughs> call us. So yeah, it was definitely, uh, Definitely not the most encouraging uh, environment to, you know, try to get into the punk scene. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Uh, how, how far was uh, Pleasanton from uh, the Bay Area? It's actually 23 miles from Oakland. Okay. And I know that because I drive out to my mom's house, who still lives out in that area. Oh, nice. And it always says, Oakland, 23 miles. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, there. I didn't have a car. and. You know, there was yeah. no, it was Transit hard was to get to, yeah, it was totally hard to get around. Um, and so, yeah, eventually we started making our way into the Oakland punk scene and meeting people there. And um, I remember meeting Aaron Elliott um, from Comet uh, yes. Bus. God yeah. bless. 
of course. And he was <laughs> like, hey, there's this thing starting called uh, Gilman Street. You should come down and check it out. And it was oh, before so Gilman right was, the beginning. Yeah, it was um, before Gilman was open. And so then I went down and I was part of the membership committee. And, um, and so that kind of got me introduced to a lot of people. And, you know, yeah. I think that's where I met Tim and started um the you know getting involved with maximum and moved in and all that kind of stuff cool so um yeah i mean most of what i know about um, about that scene it comes from you know decades of listening to the records that came out of there and also the uh the documentary that came out just a couple of years ago which you were featured in which we'll talk yes. about later on um how I mean, we all look at the past in a romanticized sort of way and look at the glory days and, and whatnot. Um, what what was it actually like in the in the East Bay, in the Bay Area punk scene in the late 80s, early 90s? I feel like, like there was this one scene that I was involved in that was like the New Method and Christ on Parade, Clown Alley, you know, a state of mind, like mm-hmm. those kind of crusty bands that were around. And um, I was living with and dating the guitarist for Christ on Parade named Doug. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I was kind of hanging out with those folks a lot. And then, but they were kind of older and had been involved in the punk scene for a while. And then okay. I started, you know, when I started being in Spitboy, it was like this younger people, kind of more my age, younger group of people that a very different scene, like kind of started to emerge. And what I would consider kind of more the um, like political East Bay kind of punk scene, like where bands like Econochrist were coming and Grimple, Paxton Quigley, Phil, all those kinds of bands, Screw yeah. 32 were happening. Um, and punk houses like Little Arkansas and the Maxi Pad and, you know, like, and it, that became a very tight knit, very close community of friends. And is that sort of the crew that sort of coalesced, coalesced around Gilman Street when it came up or yeah, a little I, bit different? I definitely feel like the folks that kind of started Gilman were, you know, the maximum to Yohannan, like, the older some of the older folks that were um, involved to kind of get it going and then you know I started being less involved with actively involved with Gilman and being more involved with the band but still coming and playing shows there still going to see shows and bands play there all the time like it's kind of one of those every weekend there was just something happening at Gilman that you would want to go see yeah that sounds good pretty pretty awesome time it was really really amazing (laughs) like not such such a gift to have a place i mean back in those days to have a permanent all ages venue was so rare and i mean gilman street sort of set the standard and it's still going today i don't know what what condition it's in uh, or you know any of the politics because i don't live there i don't care but um just the fact that it exists still and it was sort of the that uh, between gilman street and abc no rio just sort of set the standard for what an all-ages venue should be in north america at least yeah 
Yeah, I feel like I got, in terms of growing up in a punk scene, I got so lucky to grow up in this punk scene and to yeah. be involved so actively in this area because it, there was so much happening, that, you know, maximum rock and roll coming out of the Bay Area, and that was huge, you oh, know, yeah. and being involved with that. I mean, that alone right there, maximum rock and roll, was a huge part of the punk scene and a huge resource for people and, um, you know, and a great thing to put your energy into. Um, and then Gilman Street and then there was the place in San Francisco that was a record store, and I'm blanking on the name. Oh my oh, gosh! Shit, I right. I know, um, I know the one you're talking about too. Yes, I've seen it, it in was, ads in Maximum Rock and Roll for years. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm blanking on the name. But they used to have shows, whatever well, they're when, called. When 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 you uh, when it comes to you, even if you're in the middle of another <laughs> thought, just just blurt it out. Just blurt it out. <laughs> Epicenter. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Of course. Epicenter. Got it. Yes. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I knew it was going to come to me. Um, but yeah, you know, like there was so, it, it was it was kind of like, what do you feel like doing? Do you feel like being on a radio show? Here's Maximum Rock and Roll Radio. Do you feel like putting working on a zine? Put out a zine. Do you want to be in a band? You've got places to play. It was just like, it, it was like, here's all these things you can do. All you need is the drive and the desire and the passion and the interest and to go do it. Yeah, you didn't even really need the know-how because that's just something you you learn and you know oh, yeah. by trying. Totally. And there was a, ten people there going, "Oh, you want to learn how to print shirts? Let me show you how." Then you oh, do this, yeah. and you do this, and you do this. Like it, it, it was just a very creative, very supportive, and a lot of resources and a lot going on that just allowed people to kind of explore and and have fun. Yeah, no, that, that sounds absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Obviously, you know, the the Bay wasn't the only place where all that sort of stuff was going on, but it seems that it kind of was, actually, in retrospect. Well, I know, like, oh. New York had, you know, they had, like you said, ABC No Rio, and the same thing, like, here's yeah. these magazines coming out, here's, uh, you know, areas where, you know, you can be involved, you can go do things. Minneapolis was another yes. Yes. great... You know, um, Chicago. Like, oh yeah, like yeah. there's yeah, they all these little scattered hot across spots. the land. I guess yeah, it's just um, back in those days. I guess it was just those particular hot spots. Whereas now, nowadays, with with the internet and everything being so connected for better and for worse, um, makes things easier now. I guess. Yeah, it's just it's funny. Like I have no idea what shape the punk scene is in these days. You know, like because I yeah. can't go to the shows because right. of my ears, and you know, so I'm just like, is there still an active, thriving punk scene? And I just because of what's going on with me, I am not a part of it, and I can't, you know, and I'm just not aware yeah. of it. Or is it kind of slowed down? Is it just morphed into something else? And it's really hard to say. I just, I'm just not connected enough to know anymore. But I hope no, it's still thriving and. Oh, it absolutely, absolutely is. And that there's makes me happy. people of every generation still, you know, super into it. Um, I don't see myself leaving it at any time soon. And you know, um, Martin from uh, Los Crudos is still doing his thing. And, Yay! But like, there's so many, so many kids like. Back when I was still living in Calgary, when I would 
when I was in a period where I wasn't going to as many shows, anytime I would go to an Ologist show, particularly a, a one with a decent drawing band, I, I would be amazed at, you know, there's like 30 or 40 super young kids I'd never seen before. And then, you know, later on, there's all these new bands cropping up. Um, and that was in Calgary, you know, kind of redneck shithole. And, you know, Vancouver is killing it. And just, yeah, yeah it's absolutely still thriving to this day. Um, that makes me inter- happy. Internationally and nationally. And, yeah, it's great. I, That's I'm stoked. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I would I think- have been sad if you'd been like, it's kind of died off and there's not much going on. I'd have been like, oh, that's too bad because I want it to still be thriving, whether I'm involved in it or not, or aware of what's going on or not. I want it. I, it makes me happy to know it's out in the world and it's still this amazing thing. Oh, it absolutely is. I, I think it's, I mean, it's had such an impact on me and on, on so many people I know. Um yeah, I don't think there's anything that could really stop it at this point. Yeah. And that's a good thing. Oh, that's very good. Yeah. Um, so why don't we talk about Spit Boy? That's, that's a pretty major um, piece of your resume. Yes. Um, how did Spit Boy start? Um, so when I was living with Doug, the guitarist for Christ on Parade, he made this tape of music that was it wasn't really punk rock it was kind of like rock a little bit more rock and we were just messing around and I was like oh let me put some vocals on top of it that'd be really funny and you're like okay and so he recorded me singing it singing over this song and then somehow Todd the drummer the woman who ended up drumming for Spitboy Mm -hmm. um she heard it and she was like, Hey, I'm starting this band and I like the way you sang on that tape and you should join my band. And I was like, okay. And then, um, somehow I think she got Karen and then Karen brought in Paula or else she got Paula and Paula brought in Karen. So, and then we all just got together and we were like, let's do this band. And, um, and so then we started having band practices and then, we, I was doing Maximum Rock and Roll Radio with my best friend, Wendy, and we were asking people for band names. We were like, hey, everybody listening, if you have a band name, call in and let us know. And people were calling in with super goofy names. Of course. Um, of course. And then Wendy's partner at the time, Noah, he was like, uh, what about Spitboy? And we were like, what does Spitboy mean? What is that? And he told us about the whole native alaskan legend and we were just like bam yes perfect thank you so yeah so that worked out great now um from the from the get-go was spitboy intended to be um an in-your-face feminist band or was that just sort of your own lived experiences sort of coming out it it was i want to use the word organic um it was just it was never something where we sat down and said hey we should do this it was more like hey i wrote these lyrics and this is what i'm thinking about this is what's moving me right now this is Mm -hmm. what i'm you know thinking about and feeling and it as for women a lot of it was about issues we were facing and having to address as women right um i never really considered myself a feminist 
I've considered myself more of a humanist Mm -hmm. where to me, it's like, I understand the struggles that women face and the things that women go through and suffer through and have to deal with. But I also have a lot of compassion for the things that men face and men have to go through and men have to suffer through. And I feel like to just be like only focused on one and not looking at the bigger picture where we're all in this together is unfortunate. Right. Um, And so sometimes that's gotten me into trouble because people, you know, I've been called a male sympathizer which I'm, I'm assuming like, that's in some of the uh, super separatist <laughs> sort of sects of. I, I actually was so it was kind of funny when I was told that I was a male separatist because it there was a friend of mine, this guy and his girlfriend told him to come find me to tell me I'm a male separatist. And I was like, Wait, so what? she. Yeah, I was like, really? So your girlfriend couldn't come and find me herself and have this conversation she sent you her boyfriend to tell me okay (laughs) that that, that seems uh interesting (laughs) totally i was just like that makes no sense but all right that's her opinion more power to you okay it's so funny oh sorry oh no like please Oh yeah, um, it's actually it's funny you mentioned that you um, were compassionate about um, male issues. Uh, ugh, sorry, that sounds awkward and clunky, but um, men's issues. Uh, um, I was watching a, a performance uh, of an old Spitboy show on YouTube earlier today, and uh, you were talking about rape culture, and you were making the point that men do get raped as well, and um, that it's you know not. Like just supporting all rape victims, no matter the gender, and I, I thought that was really cool because that doesn't seem like that's something that really comes up too often, even still to this day. I think that it's I like when I was doing my zine too far. One of the interviews that I did was with a, a man that I was friends with who had been raped at knife point, oh, Jesus. and yeah, and had this horrific experience. And so my whole interview was about what he went through. And then also what, you know, is called the second rape, where then he went to the police as a man who was assaulted and had no support, no compassion, no, there was no resource, like literally zero resources for him to go to. There was no support groups. There was no one he could talk to. His friends were just like, didn't know what to say, you know, like, and to me, it's like, yeah, I want to, I want to see both sides of the coin. I want to see both sides of the picture because otherwise I'm half blind and stumbling through this without the support that I need from men and women to be able Mm -hmm. to navigate life properly, you know? Well, I, I think it sort of just boils down to um, patriarchy as um, as an overarching institution in our society. It just it affects and harms everybody, and obviously, you know, women and 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 uh, trans people t- tend to get bear the the worst of it. But it still has effects on everyone. 
yeah. who doesn't have that power. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because if, it's, you know, say, God forbid, I get assaulted, that doesn't just, it impacts me. It impacts every aspect of me, but that impacts my husband, Jeremy, too. You mm -hmm. know, like, it's not just, well, here's what I went through and you, it didn't impact or anything on you. It yeah. impacts on my brother. It impacts on my male friends, my female friends. It's everybody that loves me and that I'm close to is going to feel the impact of me, of that, something like that happening, For you sure. know? Um, so it's not just, yeah, it's, I just feel like there's issues that all of us have to face, whether you're a woman or you're a man, and that the more understanding than, and coming together that we can do, then the more support we're all able to give each other. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And um, that's part of the reason that I wasn't a big fan of the Riot Girl movement. Is oh, because, I was actually going to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, like I've never been a fan of it um, because of the whole men stand in the back of the shows and men pay more to get into the shows and men, you know, can't be in the pit and men can't do this. And it's like, to me, it's like you're punishing all these guys that are coming to these shows it, it, you know, like that it never made sense with, to me and it mm -hmm. never sat comfortably with me. And it's not it's not something that I condoned or or felt was empowering at all. Like um, and that also was a very unpopular opinion for us to have for Spitboy to have. But was that an opinion that all of you shared or was that specifically you or? Oh, no. Yeah, we. Pretty much all of us were not fans of uh, the Right Girl movement. And then it was kind of funny because at one show, um, I think in D.C., the, our drummer Todd said, we are not a Riot Girl band. We are not a Fox Core band. We are not, you know, like whatever label. We're a group of women playing music together. and mm -hmm. But we are not any of these labels. And then somehow that morphed into, once it got out that we had said something like that, that morphed into, like, uh, Riot Girls hate Spitboy and, you know, like... Oh, yeah, the, the typical yeah, 90s like this sort whole of infighting thing. Yeah, totally. yeah, We were just like, wow, this is kind of bananas, you know, that we can't just be doing our own thing, you know, and, and that that's not okay. Well, yeah, didn't that same or someone at that specific Riot Girl show um, or that specific Riot Girl at that Spitboy show in D.C. also accuse Spitboy of cultural appropriation for you for having a seven inch in Spanish, even though Todd, Ooh. a.k.a. Michelle, is Mexican? Yeah, that was also like... Was that the same infuriating. time? Infuriating. It was around That's... that same time. I don't know if it was that show, but it was around that same time. And it was just like, are you kidding me? Like, wow. It was, yeah. Yeah. That was just mind blowing. Like, but, you know, I mean, what? Yeah. It I mean, was definitely. I, all you can really do is laugh at this point, but I, I yeah. can imagine at the time just being fed up. Oh, yeah. There was, we were just like, this is this is getting crazy. This is just weird. You know, like yeah, yeah, totally. we had people in Europe 
who, you know, I don't think it was Riot Girls. I'm not sure who it was. It was some mm-hmm. feminist group in Europe who saw our logo, which is the woman with the, her hand, you know, her arm over her face and her breast showing. And it's a, a woodcut. Um, it's a, you know, black and white stark image. Um, yeah. And um, they boycotted the show. Wait, because they were like that image is sexist and we were but, like huh <laughs> you know, like, but what what <laughs> totally and and to me it's like you know you have an issue like that come to the show and talk to us come to the I mean, show and yeah. see that we're actually for women playing music and that it's not a sexist image it's one that's empowering and they would have even just bothered to listen to a song. A song, something, please. But people just jump. You know, they just see something and they just react. And that's very common. You know, like they yeah. hear something through the grapevine, they react. You know, they see, I mean, nowadays it's just the internet. You see something on the internet and then all of a sudden it's just reactions left and right, you know? Yeah, yeah. For better so. or for worse. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Back then it was like in a zine or, you know, in maximum or something. And Oh, and yeah, then, over the letters page for six months in a row. Yeah, the same totally. argument over and over. Over Just and over and over. Just shots. Yeah. So. Great, great fodder for entertainment now. In, oh, totally. You know, but, yeah, now it's not comments on Facebook or Instagram. Now, back then... Now it's it's comments on Facebook. Yeah. Back then now it, it was in a, letters in, in the maximum section. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh boy. Um. Oh, where was I? Oh yeah. Um. Actually, speaking on on one more bit about Riot Girl. Um. So I was watching this documentary and Anna Joy was interviewed and it was a documentary on uh, on women in punk um, in the '90s and 2000s, and Anna Joy was. In, uh, was interviewed and she made the comment that the Bay Area in general sort of never really got on board with the Riot Girl thing because um, the Bay Area women were just hard as nails punks and they saw Riot Girl as sort of this mi- upper middle class sort of college movement that sort of turned up its nose at punks and the East Bay was just, you know, punk women, not not uh, snooty college kids. Is that sort of sum it up? Yeah, I think that definitely. I'm obviously, I'm paraphrasing terribly. Oh, yeah, but... totally. <laughs> but I, I would agree with that. I know that I remember there was a Riot Girl, like they were going to have a meeting of Riot Girls, like, you know, East Bay, Oakland, Riot Girl, first meeting or something like. And I go, I went to the meeting because I was just, by then I was already, I knew I was not in support of a right girl. I was not into it at all. Right. And I went to the meeting and everyone, you know, all these women sitting in a circle in this punk house. And, you know, they were like, okay, so who would like to, to start and say something? And I raised my hand and they were like, what would you like to say? And I was like, I just want to say that I'm really disappointed that this is happening and that there would be right girl kind of thing in the East Bay. And I don't support this at all. And I just wanted a chance to come here and say that. And then I stood up and I walked out. Oh, damn. Yeah. I was just like, this is not, this isn't, you know, like that's how strongly I felt against it. 
you know, like, yeah. I just, to me, it was just didn't have a place in the East Bay punk scene. And, and did I any of them have a, like, did any of them have any roots in the punk scene at all or not really? Uh, you know, it never really, as far as I know, it never really took a strong hold there. It, there I don't remember there being a lot of people that were claiming themselves to be riot girls or kind of switched into or moved into that direction. So, um, so I'm not quite sure. And I, and if there was, I was actively not involved in any of it. That's fair. Yeah. So there might've been maybe a huge riot girl movement in the Bay area that I just really, really, really was not a part of. Yeah. Well, seems like you had your own thing going on with a bunch of cool people. So yeah, it doesn't, really really matter no no two different worlds really not interacting whatsoever um yeah very different shit talking in each other's zines i guess yeah that that seemed to be happening but yeah (laughs) yeah i think that's um inevitable unfortunately still but yeah uh moving on um so lyrics who wrote most of the songs did everyone um, have an equal sort of part to play? or? Yeah, like uh, I wrote a bunch of songs and Todd wrote lyrics. And then I know Karen, like everyone in the band pretty much had a chance to, um, you know, to write lyrics or view, voice or view their opinion or their thoughts, you know, right. on stuff. Um, so, yeah, like... Uh, I would say that it was definitely not always just me writing lyrics, you know. Right. Um, Dominique and I know Paula wrote, I think she wrote, I'm trying to remember if Dominique and Paula also wrote lyrics, but a lot of it was uh, me and a lot was Todd. Yeah. So, yeah, between the two of us. That's cool. Yeah. So. How did you guys end up combining forces with the Mighty Crudos for one of the most important split records of an entire decade? Oh my gosh, thank you. That's oh, so nice um, to say. Oh my gosh, it's so true though. <laughs> it's just um, so good. I I think we just were playing shows like, you know, we were in Chicago and playing shows and then they were coming out here and then we were just getting to know them and they were so awesome and it just seemed like of course, like we have to do this. This would be amazing. Like it would be so great to do this. Um, and then also, um, you know, with working with Ebullition and with Kent McClard and, you know, we all just loved Kent. And so that just seemed like the perfect fit. And he was just so, you know, we're like, we want to do, you know, this crazy cover that's made out of this material that's embossed and printed and has little tucks in the side, you know, like, and he's like, yeah. sure, whatever. Like, that what do you guys want to so do? so iconic. It's so, yeah, like, we were just like, we want to do this crazy cover. And he's like, okay, that works, you know. <laughs> so he was very supportive and accommodating to, you know, to us. And so it just, yeah, it was just this, perfect marriage of, of, you know, all of us and Los Crudos and Ebullition Records just kind of coming together and, um, and making this thing happen. Um, but yeah, it was, it was great. You know, it was, it just seemed like, of course, we're going to do this. What else would we do? What other band (laughs) would we do this with? You know? 
yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, just a, a really perfect team up, even though both bands played, you know, pretty different styles, but at the same time, it's all it's all super DIY, super passionate, super important. Um, and I think that's music. the part that, yeah, like musically very different, mm-hmm. but for, I think both Los Crudos and Spitboy responded to the intensity and the passion and the commitment and the dedication that was behind the music and the lyrics, you know? And so I think even though style-wise things were so different, that that was the common thread, was all of us kind of sharing that same passion and that same dedication. So I think that was the most important part. Absolutely. And I mean, even from an artistic standpoint, like I think having bands that don't sound like uh, cookie cutter versions of each other, having them together on a record is, I think that's a really cool thing. Um, And having it work so well, like, you know, there's a billion discharge clones out there and they all obviously they all sound like the father band and they on a split record you can't really tell what side yeah. is which yeah um but yeah i think it's really great when bands of compl- not even compl- well, just very different styles um work together so well yeah they, i just think it's really cool and then happens. you want to hear you want to hear something funny about that record absolutely um, so Karen decided that she wanted to have Steve Albini record us for that split. Okay, and that's a pretty big deal. Totally. So we were like, yeah, Steve Albini. Like, okay. I I loved Big Black Atomizer. Like, I loved mm-hmm. that album. And so she reaches out to Steve Albini and is like, hey, I'm in this band called Spitboy. You may not have heard of us. And he's like, no, I've totally heard of you guys. And Wait, we were what? Like, really? I know, totally. That's awesome. We were like, how did that happen? We were, all of us were like, he's actually heard of us. Okay. And she was like, well, we would love for you to record us. We're doing a, you know, split record with this other band. And so we, we want you to record us. And he was like, well, I have this one weekend free. Um, so if you guys fly out, um, then I will record you. And so we were like, of course we will fly out and have you record us. That would be awesome. So we flew out and we went to his house and um, he's so sweet. Uh, We come walking in and it's a house. I mean, it's just Steve's house. And so we're just random house. So we're like, so where do we record? Like, where do we go? So he walks over to this painting that's hanging on the wall. And it's this woman in a negligee, a painting of a woman in a negligee and her nipples are lit up. And he presses one of the nipples and a bookcase in the wall goes up into the ceiling and there's stairs going up into the recording space. Wait, are you, are you making any of this up? I am not making this up. Oh my up. God. So he had set up, we were like, holy shit, what just happened? And He's, I was like, how did how did any of that just happen? What's going on? And so he had taken a garage door opener and installed it into the steps, the stairs leading to the attic. And the lit up nipples was actually, he showed us behind the painting and it was the car, the garage door opener 
was oh my God. installed behind the painting. And then the <laughs> other one was just a little light that was installed to match. And that's where he hid. He doesn't live there anymore. So that's why I'm telling the big secret. But okay. Okay. <laughs> that's where he hid his, you know, gazillion dollars worth of recording equipment was oh my in God, the he's attic. A bad scientist. Totally. Or I like, was just like, like this Batman is amazing. Or and then you would record downstairs, like that's where you'd play. That's where all the soundproof area was. And then he'd be up in the attic with everybody, and then you'd have headphones and talking to each other via headphones. Oh. It was awesome. That's wild. Yeah. And then he was so funny. Like, I was, you know, we're all just hanging out. He's really easygoing guy, super easy to talk to. And I just had, I had to dork out for a moment with him. And I was mm. just like, I have to tell you, um, he's, I was like on Atomizer. Um, there's that one song, um, Kerosene. I was like, I love that song. And he got, all of a sudden he kind of got a little weird. And I was like, I hope I didn't offend you. Are you weird that I just said that? I'm, I'm not trying to be a dork. I just love that song. And he's like, are you serious? You're not making fun of me? And I'm like, no, I, why would I make fun of you? And he's like, I've had a lot of feminist groups hate me because of that song. And I was like, why? And he's like, because it's about a prostitute named Kerosene. And I was like, are you kidding me? I was like, hold on. Because I always thought it was about, I don't know if you're familiar with the song, but it I'm says, not, no. in the lyrics, it says, set me on fire, kerosene. And I always thought it was all about some person who's so bored with their life that they literally just want to be set on fire because they're just that oh, bored. Okay. And then I was like, whoa, it's about a prostitute named set me on fire. I was like, my mind was blown. I was like, <laughs> I had no idea. Like I had this perception for years that it was about someone being like so depressed. They're just going to set themselves on fire. And I was like, and it's about a, like, it was a huge shift in perception. And wow. I still love the song, but I was just like, I just loved the fact that here I had this one perception of something and, and was completely, completely wrong. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> like so wrong. But yeah, that that's the magic and amazing parts of music, you know, and lyrics and yeah, words and yeah, all that. Totally. So. Wow. So yeah, that was Spitboy recording with Steve Albini. That's wild. Yeah. Also, just the fact. Yeah, Steve Albini, that's a huge deal. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe he agreed to it, but he did. And he, he was like, he's like, certain bands pay a certain amount. He's like, I know you guys cannot afford what these other record companies can. So I'm not going to charge you anywhere close to that amount. Like, So he that's... just totally worked with us to make it happen. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Wow. Um... I'm going to go back a couple of things. So when you guys were um, super active or, you know, when you were active, um, obviously sexism, sexism and misogyny in the um, so-called progressive, quote-unquote, alternative punk scene was rampant. Um, obviously, some things never change. Yeah. We're making, we're making some progress, but also it's, you know, kind of an uphill battle because obviously all of society needs to make 
a shift yes. before a small subculture can. Um, were there any points during the Spitboy heyday where things were looking good on that front? Or was it kind of a constant battle? You know, I feel like overall, the amount of support and encouragement that we received was just mind-blowing and amazing yeah. and incredible. And people were so kind and so encouraging and, you know, would just be like, how can we help you out? How can we support you? We'd love to do this. Do you want to do this? Do you, you know, like, and yeah. so I, so I would say overall it was great. And we, you know, and we didn't, it, what, it didn't feel like a constant battle of sexism that we had to address every day. But That's the times good. when it was were brutal. Really rough. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm know, imagining the, uh, oh, the typical God. show me your tits, cat yeah. calls. Oh, yeah. That threats. happened. There was one, probably the worst one that was the most intense was in Wisconsin, and we were on tour with Sizz and Fish, and it was a lot of people at the show. And Todd was talking, you know, in between songs, she mm -hmm. was talking about sexual assault and about this woman who was getting assaulted and what she was living through. And this guy in the audience just yells, you know, while she's describing this thing pretty intensely, all uh -oh. of a sudden he yells, yeah, that was my girlfriend. Uh, and in the microphone, fuck. she goes, she, yeah, she goes, fuck you, that was me. And the whole room just dropped into this intense sight. Like, it just reverberated. And I remember, oh, wow. like, I handed the microphone. I stepped off stage, and I handed the microphone to somebody who was in the front row Everybody just cleared and made a path right to the guy who'd yelled. And I walked right up to him and I just leaned in right up like my face right against his and just right into his ear. And I was just like, do you know what you just did to her? Do you know what you just said? I was like, fuck you. Fuck you. And then I walked back to the stage and I just started crying there was women in the front row who were holding themselves and crying. Karen, like all four of us were crying. And then we started playing uh, one of the songs about rape. And it was just so intense. It was, I mean, I could barely even sing because I was just crying so hard. And then they dragged the guy outside, you know, like he got kicked out of the show. And, you know, and then Sizz and Fish was like, uh, we don't even want to play after that. Like we... You know, like we, yeah. that was just so intense. What just happened? How do we even get on stage and, and play? And we were like, no, please. Like that was so heavy. We want, we want people to leave here feeling good. Like we don't want it to end on this note. Like, please. Yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. Bring them, bring the mood back up. Cause that just Oof. got really heavy, really fast. So wow. that was probably one of the worst, like most wrenching, just, heartbreaking moments you know but we've had a few of them like there was yeah. a few times when things like that happened that we had to address you know um and there was times like when i personally 
a couple of times, one time in England, um, someone tried to assault me. And then another time in, um, oh, I can't remember what city we were in, but um, some guy wanted the Spitboy P.O. box and I went upstairs to write it down for him on a piece of paper and he came upstairs and I was like, I was like, I'm getting you the address. And he goes, I want more than your address and starts coming at totally and starts coming at me. And luckily Todd was upstairs and she jumps, you know, she'd been lying down and she jumps up and she was just like, what the fuck is going on up here? And she like kicked him out. Like then he got dragged out of the bar. People beat him up outside. Like, Cause he was coming at me. Like he was not like, yeah. I want more than your address. I'd love to get your phone number. Like he was, he was with, yeah. he was with he intent, intent about yeah. to try to assault me. And I was just like, so stuff like that, you know, which is terrifying. And yeah. No yeah. But for the amount um, of times that I went out and partied with people after shows and got drunk and hung out and, you know, in different countries and all that kind of stuff, I yeah. was very lucky. And I, yeah. you know, I did not get hurt. And people were so much fun and kind and and sweet and showed me, you know, these amazing parts of their cities. And I had incredible adventures. And so those times when people did try, nothing came of it. And the times yeah. when I did go out into the world with these people I was meeting, these strangers, it always ended up, being great a positive or yeah yeah thank goodness so it it sounds like for the most part um even in those those really terrifying hor- horrifying situations people had your backs oh yeah yeah like anytime That's... that stuff blew up it's yeah. like the reaction that people would have would be like here's this incident and then everybody reacts so strongly you know like there was never yeah. a time when we didn't feel like we weren't supported you know that's, well that's good yeah yeah definitely that's sort of the the power of uh, the punk community um the community aspect are you do you still speak to the rest of spitboy all these years um, later now the band is no longer there's yeah we're currently um todd is working on some re-release of some double lp re-release thing yeah so with all the benefits going to women's organization um so she's kind of been you know like where i actually have an email i have to respond to and you know like um so yeah and then i got a uh instant message from karen on something you know like so yeah. yeah, we all just kind of. So you of, all went your separate ways, but no animosity or anything. Yeah, silly I mean, like that. Karen lives in New Zealand. Todd lives in San Leandro. She's kind of closer, and then um, Dominique lives in Kansas. <laughs> oh, there goes the dogs. Oops. Yep. <laughs> yeah, Jeremy's back. He left, but he's back home. So there uh, might be some barking that starts to happen. But um, yeah, everyone kind of scattered and did their own thing. But yeah. um, you know, with with such a shared history, of course, there's going to be you know, you're in a band. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like yeah. a relationship. There's yeah, good and bad. There's ups and downs. For sure. There's ups and downs. Yeah, it's like we could go back through and 
and be like, oh, you know, this thing drove me nuts and that thing was terrible. And when you said that and when I did this, like, but yeah. it's like, why? You know, it's just yeah, not, it's like yeah. 25 years ago. God, yeah. so long ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so going back, getting away from Spitboy a little bit here. Um, yeah, you know, the whole Green Day thing happened in the mid 90s. Um causing you know the east bay scene to kind of blow up on a national level what was it like um in the lead up to the green day thing and how how did that compare to after they blew up like what was what was the scene like was it super fractured um it was more like like i before it blew up i was dating billy joe's roommate this guy Greg, and okay. they I were you were, living... say you were dating Billy Joe. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. Um, <laughs> and they were living in this base punk rock basement in Berkeley. You know, like across from the Whole Foods. You know, like it was this yeah. whole thing, and you know they were just they were just it was just Billy Joe. Like uh, I remember. I was like, so I heard you guys are getting played on the radio now. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, is it this one song? And he's like, no, that's not us. And I was like, well, I've never really listened to your music. You you know, like Green Day was not (laughs) one of the bands that I liked. And so I never saw them play. I never listened to their music. It just wasn't Mm -hmm. my style of music. And so I was like, I was like, I don't know what you guys sound like. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah, sorry. And he's like, dude, can I play you something? And I was like, of course, please play me one of your songs. So he like played something on the record. And then he's like, do you want to see our video? It's not out yet. And I was like, of course, let's watch your video. Like we had this whole Green Day moment. And so Weird. he showed me their very first video. And so I was watching it. And at the very end, he's stabbing. It was filmed in that punk basement apartment. And at the very, yeah. And at the very end, he's stabbing the couch that we're sitting on. He's stabbing it and all these feathers are coming out. And I was like, I was like, so what, how did you stab this couch? Was it a fake knife? And he stands up and he lifts up the seat cushion and underneath were all the stab marks from him stabbing the couch at the end of the video. And he had just flipped the cushions so you couldn't see all the stab marks. And I was just like, okay, that's pretty funny. You know? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, you know, he's just, they were, I I didn't know the other guys very well, but, I mean, Billy Joe is just sweet. He's just a goofy. Yeah, sort of a dorky Yeah, just dorky guy. And then all of a sudden, they just, it just blew up. Like yeah, it's just the biggest band in the world. Yeah, like, and I don't. I remember, like, going to. It was a while after Dookie had come out, and he had bought a house up in the Oakland Hills, and me and a group of people went to the house, and it was like super fancy house. I don't think he lives in it anymore, and okay. it was like new carpet and new paint, you know. And we we're all like punkers. We're like we can't sit on anything because we're going to get it dirty. <laughs> we don't know what to do in a house like this, you know, yeah. like yeah. The, the carpet's white. This house is going to be destroyed. We, we have to leave now, you know? <laughs> um, but I think, you know, like, I think for anyone 
getting famous to that extent and that quickly, like it's such a young age too. Yeah, it's not easy. And I think it has a huge impact. And it was the same thing with Rancid. Like Lars and I, Lars was one of my best friends. I love Lars. Like he and I hung out every single day for like a year. And I just love him so much. And then they got huge. Like it just blew up. And... I think same thing, watching them go through it and the impact that that has on you. Mm -hmm. uh, It's hard to, it's hard for me to understand. And I was actively watching it happen. Yeah. And I, and I still don't understand how you navigate that in a way that's mentally and emotionally healthy. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's really, really hard to, so and then I definitely think it had an impact on the scene, you know, like some yeah. people were like, good for you. They're making a living, making music that they love. So what's the problem? And other people were like, no, this sucks. Like, this is not, you know, this was never meant. The punk scene was never meant to be in this arena. And yeah. yeah. And that's, it's, that's sort of where I fall. ideologically, oh, yeah. At least. So yeah, definitely. Absolutely where I fall. But yeah. also at the same time, it's like, you know, good for them. It's just not good for punk. And it's not good I for punk. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't consider what Green Day does to be punk. Anyway, not at all. So, I didn't they're rock, consider they're rock it. Band. Yeah, totally. I didn't, I mean, back in the day, I was just like, they're pop punk thing. I don't know. I don't know what they are, but it wasn't. Yeah, it's, abs- it they're, wasn't right, part they're of right, catchy scene. songs and maybe they're nice guys. And, yeah, you Totally. Know. But to I, me, I think Billy's band with Aaron is a lot more interesting. Pinhead Gunpowder is a lot better. Oh, yeah. As far as I'm yeah. concerned. Like, that's a punk band. Yeah, I think that Green Day More just, so. you know, the, the second that they the ink started drying on that major label contract, it was done. Like, yeah. then you're out of the punk scene and you're doing something different. It's just, yeah. you, then I think the hard part was then, certain people saw the punk scene as a springboard they could now use to become the next green day. And it's well, that's like, exactly what the offspring did. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think, and, I think the offspring got grosser than green day. As far as that, like I think the offspring were more predatory, at least that's what I'm getting from the most recent issue of comet bus. Yeah. You know, I, those guys, I did not know hardly at all. Like, uh, yeah, they, my friend Kamala, like a, a, a douchey is, sort of LA band. Yeah, like I know Spitboy played one show with them, but we didn't really hang out with them. And my friend mm-hmm. Kamala is good friends with them, okay. but besides that, I just don't know. You know, like I know that all of a sudden they became super famous, and you know, and yeah. did what they did. But as people, I just, you know, I just didn't know them. I don't know what impact it had on them as people, but I know the impact that it had on the scene, having all these bands all of a sudden become famous. Then it was just like, okay, are you doing this band? Cause you, you know, like, are you in a band? Cause you want to be in a band and be political and have lyrics and the passion and the dedication, or do you want to be the next green day? And this is, you're right. just using the scene as a way to get what you want, which is, fame, glory, money, and whatever yeah. else. 
and all that that gross and all lifestyle. that jazz. Yeah. Yeah. So that was unfortunate. Yeah, and I I feel like obviously I wasn't there, but I feel like um, with with all these former local bands becoming massive mega stars, just, I imagine that probably brought in an element that sort of the punk scene was avoiding for you know decades. Just brought in that mainstream element to shows people who didn't know how to act uh who didn't know ethics or the various underground codes that you know are a thing um does that is that would that be accurate would you say yeah i think that do you think there was like the a, a, a rapist jock sort of element that sprung up or frat boy i should say you know that part because folks like that might be going might have started going to green day shows that Mm -hmm. none of us were now going to you know like at least my friends were not like lining up to get into a green day show you know and so so, there wasn't any danger of chads coming to say a spit boy show or a yeah not so much that that. wasn't yeah that really wasn't gonna happen you know, it was more just the internal, like, watching bands try to exploit the punk scene to get famous, you know, where all of a sudden there was no question before Green Day and Rancid and Offspring, there was no question people being in bands. It just, that was not part of anyone's agenda, you know, like Mm -hmm. nobody was going to be in a band to try to be the next big thing. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, you know, like this band, you know, like it just changed, it just changed the landscape in a way that, and brought attention to bands and that didn't want the attention, you know, like that didn't want to be the next Green Day, didn't want to be the next Rancid and didn't want to have anything to do with that, you know? So yeah, it was a very weird and hard time to watch that the impact that that had and the division that it caused because, you know, there was people that were adamantly against Green Day and what they were doing and people that were supporting them because they're their friends and had known them, you know, like yeah. just caused some division in the punk scene for sure. And that's, that's never fun. No. Yeah. Uh, switching gears. Um, Os Rotten. You, yes. um, I think actually the I first came across your vocal stylings through Os Rotten. Um, how did how did that happen? How did you get on board with them? So it was kind of funny. Like I was living in New York um, at the Tribal War India Street warehouse, and I was not familiar with Os Rotten, which I know might be surprising because they were very popular back then, but I just, it wasn't for whatever reason, they were not on my radar. Okay. So they came to stay with us. They were playing a show or something. So then I met them as just like the, here's this band called off, off something. I don't know. I just, these guys, because we had Mm. bands staying with us constantly. All the time. Yeah. All the time. And so, um, and they were so sweet and they were so nice. And I just loved them as people so much. And then I think we were like going to Connecticut to see them play. And I was like, I can't wait to see our band play. Our guys are so great. And then 
Eric, no, no, Corey, the bass player, Corey, Mm -hmm. he was like, hey, do you want to sing with us? And I was like, really? Are you really? You want me to sing with you? And he's like, yeah, that'd be great. And I was like, I would love to sing with you guys. That would be awesome. And not even thinking like, I was just like, I like you guys so much that whatever style of music you guys do, I don't even care. You do a pop punk <laughs> band, I'll figure it out. You know, like They're I just, just want such sweethearts. You're like, such I want sweethearts that I was like, oh, of course, hey. And then he had not discussed it with his bandmates. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so then that was a little Oops. awkward because all of a sudden I'm like, this is so exciting. And they're like, what? What's exciting? And I was like, um, well, I just <laughs> got offered. I was like, this is now awkward and exciting. And then, of course, everybody was just like, yeah, totally. Of course. Why not? Sure. That makes sense. Please. Yeah. And I, you know, and so then, thank goodness, they weren't like, no, sorry, Corey should have never said that. <laughs> it was so funny. Um, and so, yeah, so then it just kind of happened that way. And I, which I'm glad, I'm glad it wasn't like, oh my God, I love this band. I love this band. And I have to sing with you guys. Let me sing. You know, it was more just yeah. like, I don't, give a flying whatever about your band you guys are awesome people and i want to be involved in doing whatever with you guys because you guys are so awesome um so yeah it was really nice and then um so then i would just work with dave on lyrics stuff for a couple of songs and then with the second rape Corey was like i wrote you a song and I'm going to send you to you on a tape and I'd like you to write lyrics for it. And he's wow. like, but I wrote it for you. And I was like, okay, I can't wait to hear it. Cause now I was familiar with their style of music. And I, mm-hmm. so I remember putting the tape on and pressing play. And I was like, this sounds nothing like a normal, a regular Osiratan song. Yeah. I was like, this is super different. Like, I remember specifically being like, whoa, this is really different song. Like even just the music, the style. Yeah. And I was, so then I just started writing and then Dave and I started working on the introduction part, like the back and forth, you know, like we just yeah. were trying to figure out how we wanted, you know, like the message and how we were going to do that. And then, um, and then we, I went down to record with them and, and I got to say, recording the second rape was so intense. Like, the way it felt when I was recording it was so intense. And yeah. then I still listen to it sometimes now. And and it still elicits the same emotions inside me that I was feeling when I recorded it. And, and I get, I mean, I, I react to it still. Like, yeah. I'll listen to it and I just... It makes me want to cry. It just, you know, makes yeah, my throat tighten a up. It's super, super powerful song. I still get shivers when I hear it. Yeah. And there's, yeah, there's times just... when I actually have to skip it um, for the, the very same reason. Um, yeah. Because where it's, it's sometimes too it's too intense. intense. Yeah. yeah. It's just so intense. And yeah. I, when we recorded it, it was just, I don't think it was one of those ones where it's like, okay, that part was a little off. Can you go back in and record it? It was kind of like, okay, we're good. You know, like yeah, just once and done, just one and done. We, I can't yeah. 
go through that again. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's very, very powerful song. So, yeah, uh, you ended up on two of their records. That's not too bad, considering you didn't know who they were when you first yeah, met them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. So funny. And then I yeah. remember on the first record, I think I was special agent Adrian Scully. Yeah, and then yeah. on the second record, I wanted to be Adrian the Vampire Slayer. And Dave <laughs> said no. Like, oh, no. come on, Dave. I know. I was like, that's hilarious. That would be so funny. And he was just not having it. Um, but, and then I remember there was, so I loved Jillian Anderson. And in the warehouse, amazing. yeah, of course, she's amazing. In the <laughs> warehouse, I had this area where I was had all my workout stuff in my heavy bag because I was doing kickboxing at the time. And, and I had this poster of Jillian Anderson and she's in some, you know, sexy pose on this mm-hmm. poster in my little workout area for inspiration. And so Os Rotten came up to play some shows and um, and I was supposed to play with them. And, and I come out from my room into the area where the workout room was and where the living room was. It's kind of the big open warehouse space. Mm-hmm. And I look at the poster and it's covered in graffiti. Uh like just covered and I lost my mind and I was just like and they were laughing and I was like did you guys do this and they were like oh yeah it's funny it's funny and I was so upset like I think I yelled at them (laughs) and then went into the bedroom and was just bawling and I I was just like for you to come into my home and destroy anything that I yeah. own in this home and to show me that level of disrespect. I, but this was all at high volume and very intense. I was just like, I cannot believe that you would do that. And so I was in my room, so upset. And Dave comes in and he's, car- he's holding the poster, but it's one that doesn't have any writing on it. And he was like, we found a copy of the poster and we drew on it and put it up over yours. So yours is totally fine. And we just did it as a joke. And now we feel really bad. Oh, my God. God. I was like, I still can't believe that you guys did that. It's not funny. And I'm so upset. Like, I just totally could not get past being upset. Even though my poster was fine, it was actually a very funny joke in hindsight. In hindsight, but it just yes. totally. It was just in the moment, not the best joke. So they actually went to the show and they kept calling me from payphones and they're like, "Do you think you're going to be able to come to the show?" And I was like, "No, I'm still upset. No, I'm not going to the show." And they're like, "We feel really bad." We feel really bad. And I was like, it's okay. I love you. Don't worry about it. I love you guys. I just can't go to the show. It was funny. It's funny now. It was not yeah, funny that night. it doesn't sound very funny, actually. No. It was, <laughs> <laughs> As I laugh. It was deeply traumatizing that night. But in, yeah. once again, in hindsight, it was a pretty good joke. They totally got me. And yeah. Yeah. my reaction was definitely 
more than they bargained for. <laughs> Way more than they bargained for. They were definitely just like, oh, God, we feel really bad. We're uh, never doing that again. We fucked up, guys. Totally. Oops. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So, yeah, they're awesome. They're really good guys. Yeah, I've only, I've only met Dave. Uh, he's He was a total sweetheart when I met him eight years ago now. Um, I'm hoping to have him on the show at some point. Uh, oh, yeah. I would love to pick his brain. Yeah. Um, yeah. He would uh, be a great person to interview. Yeah, he's... Yeah, we had a very, very limited conversation when I met him, but, yeah, he just... like you can t- Some people you can just tell are total sweethearts. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, he seems like he he's is a total sweetheart. Yeah, he's just... definitely... All of them, like, they are really just the nicest people you could possibly meet. Yeah. Um... What about Tim Yohannan? Uh, Tim Yohannan, like, I, you know, I got to say, there's times when I still miss Tim Yohannan. Like, there's yeah. times when something's going on, and I just wish I could go find Tim and sit down and go, okay, Tim, so this is what's going on. Because he's one of those people that could just cut through the bullshit, call yeah. you out on your shit. And be like, all right, like, you know, here's the situation you're in. This is what I think. Da 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 da. This is why I think this. And very, very straightforward, super mm-hmm. hyper honest, very perceptive guy. And so losing him was huge, you know, like, yeah. and he was just such a huge part of my formative years in the punk scene that it was definitely, you know, like when he passed away, that was a loss. And yeah, I, for sure. like Kamala and I, she was friends with him also. And Kamala and I would totally, we'll still, you know, go out to dinner and sometimes his name comes up and we'll just be like, oh, Tim. You know, like we both kind yeah. of still miss him, you know? Yeah. And that's not to say, I mean, he and I would get into huge arguments and I'd be like, here's the key to the maximum house. I do not want to work on the magazine anymore. And I'd storm out and he'd be like, fine, give me the keys back. And then we'd see each other like two weeks later and we'd be like, okay, give me the keys back. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. you know, you get two people with two very strong opinions and I was young and we're going to clash and, you know, like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But um, yeah. I still miss him course yeah i'm i obviously never came across him never will but um you know he always elicits a strong opinion one way or the other i don't think there's anyone out there who doesn't have an opinion on him um yeah i i came across uh an old issue of maximum rock and roll and with an interview between tim and spitboy and oh yeah that interview he's like grilling you pretty hard and you're like pretty like i don't know there's there's points where i'm like jesus christ tim just take it down a notch you're really making her uncomfortable he really you he can got like to... feel it from the, the oh yeah newsprints like totally I'm like, I had to angry walk on your behalf the, yeah i had to walk out of the interview at one point and come back in you know like i'm sure if i'd had how keys to the house i would have been like here's the keys to the house, Tim. You know, so like, even when he's interviewing, theoretically promoting your band, he would still 
pull the Tim card? Well, he he got to this place where he really wanted people to be confrontational. And he wanted people Which to name names and be confrontational. And, you know, like he was just going to. So that was where he was at at that moment was he was just like wanted to just be like, let's stir the pot. You know, let's, yeah. you know, get into this, really get into this. And so it definitely it, I remember the interview just being mo- very different from other interviews that we've done. You know, right. Because he just really wanted to elicit a strong reaction and was just kind of like poking pretty hard. Yeah, he was he's being a real dick about it. Yeah. That's, and, that's not men's words. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and for him, I think he just really wanted to ha- like get a reaction, have that reaction. You know, like it there was he was just in this headspace that was different from how he had been previously. And not just with us. Right. This is just in yeah. general. Right. Um and I guess that was sort of the beginning of when Tim was dictating what punk is and isn't. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. kind of the post Nirvana pre Green Day yep. period when he totally. was drawing the lines. Yes. And so he I think you know, he was in a fervor and we were a part of that, you know, that interview was part of his fervor. Um, Yeah. But I remember when, when we were finished with the interview, he's let us do the layout and and we were like, so maybe he'll give us like two or three pages in the magazine. That'd be kind of cool. And he was just like, when we asked him like, well, how many pages, since we're doing the layout, how many pages are we going to get? And he was like, uh, eight. And we were just like, holy shit, eight pages. Okay, we will gladly take eight pages. Thank you. Yeah, you know, like I got one. So, you know, yeah, you know, we for us, it was it was just shocking. We were really surprised, but so happy that we got a chance to have more of what we wanted, you know, like in there to, you know, have that platform. Um, so he was really supportive of the band and he was really supportive of us as people. Um, you know, it's just, he was a very strong willed person and very strongly opinionated. And so it was very easy for him to clash Mm -hmm. with people, um, because he wasn't going to pull his punches, you know, he was, if he thought you were fucking up, he was going to say you're fucking up, you know? Yeah, and he'd probably put it in the magazine and the whole world would know that you're fucking up. Oh, yeah. Like, I, you know, when I was writing for Maximum, there was this guy, Bill Florio, who Uh, was, yeah, who was also writing for Maximum and wrote. Wasn't he uh, doing the the gossip column under a fake name? Yeah, yep. Yeah. He was. Yeah, I remember that. He wrote something about me in his column that was really oh. unkind and really fucked up. And I called Tim and I was so upset. And Tim was just like, he's like, well, I thought that you would think it was funny. And I was like, Tim, first off, if it was funny, I'd be laughing and I am not laughing. And second, if there was any concern, if you had even a moment where you thought, I wonder how she's going to react to this, you should have called me. And, and yeah. asked, 
Like it was easy enough. And I was just like, I don't want to write for a magazine where I'm being attacked in other columns. That's not why I want to do this. And that's not appropriate and it's not right. And so that was the, I mean, that was the end of me writing for Maximum, you know, and I've still never met Bill and I hope I never mm -hmm. meet him. He <laughs> should hope he never meets me because <laughs> I feel like he had such a negative impact on my friendship with Timmy O'Hannon, you know, right. over that whole issue that I was, Bill, the thought of Bill used to just enrage me. Like I just triggered me and yeah. make me so angry. And so I don't have that same reaction, but you at know, the same time. at the same time, I you don't got, ever want to meet that guy. never need to cross. Ever. Yeah. Well, if it's any consolation, you probably never will. And yes, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Oh, that's, that's great. That's Keep okay. only good people around. <laughs> Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, so, I don't need to that. Did you ever get a chance to say goodbye to Tim? You know, I didn't. I was living in New York and I had come to visit San Francisco and I saw Tim on that visit, but it was before anything was terminal or if it was terminal, he wasn't talking about it, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I was at home with my boyfriend Todd and um we were watching gosh the full Monty that movie the full Monty yeah. and Michael Board called me um he used to be he used to write for Maximum and yeah. Michael called me and he was like hey I have to tell you something and I was like what's up and he's like you know Tim passed and stuff and I just was crying and so Every time, if I see anything about the full Monty, because I, I have such an association with hearing this horrible news with this movie that oh, I just no. see the full Monty and I'm just like, oh, oh my God, that horribly upsetting, depressing, awful film, like the full Monty. Oh, like, no. I can't totally, I cannot break the association. Because I think after I talked to Michael, I was like, I just want to zone out just put the movie back on i just want to sit and watch this movie and just oh, try not to geez. cry you know and so i tried to watch the rest of the movie and just yeah so the full monty is a heartbreaking gut-wrenching film for me because of that association but yeah i didn't so i didn't get that chance to say goodbye you know um, yeah but yeah yeah, definitely. You know, yeah, Tim was a good person. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, all in all, over there, um, given your life now, uh, what what would you say are some of the lessons and and stuff that the punk scene has taught you and, and over the years, and and how do they apply to your life currently? You know, I I feel like the punk scene is such a part of me, like being. I, not I'm not actively involved, but it's it's like the, just the core essence, you know, like yeah, of me. And it's it's there's no way for me to be like, oh, it influenced me in this way, in this way, in this way, because the influence is so vast and so huge. It's like it's like how did your mother influence you? Mm -hmm. It's like mm -hmm. oh my gosh, there's 
ways I can tell you and there's ways that I'm not even aware of because the influence is so deep and so intrinsic of who I am and, and such an integral part of me. And it feels that way with the punk scene. Like I got involved when I was 16 and I'm 51 now and all of the lessons and the politics and the, the um, you know, personal politics and the beliefs and everything, it still just resonates through me, you yeah. know, like it's still just a part of me and it's such a part of me that it's, it's not, I'm not able to say like, oh, it's this influence and this and this because it's kind of like, it's just me like it's just this part of me it's not even a part of me it's just me like yeah it's my cultural identity it's it's you know I am a woman I'm a punk I'm you know like I'm a gardener I am you know like <laughs> yeah. I'm all these things but being a punk is is part of that you know yeah so yeah I am so grateful I know sometimes people get out of the punk scene and they get really bitter about it and they blame the punk scene for this and for that. And, you know, they get very angry at it. And I have, am nothing but grateful for the time that I was involved in the punk scene. I am nothing but appreciative and so thankful that I got to be a part of something so special and amazing. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, well, we're glad to have had you and to still have you. I mean, it's kind of like the mafia. Once you're in, you're in for life. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah if no if you're now. doing it right. I mean, a yeah. lot of people, like you said, leave and get bitter and, and shit, on, shit on younger people and, and, yeah. and stuff. I've, I've always hated that. It's totally. never been in the circle of punk that I've been involved with, though. I mean, I think the DIY scene has the longest... Um, pedigree pedigree yeah what am i saying i don't know um but i think the people that are in the diy punk scene specifically tend to stay there the longest and even if they're not going to shows even if they're not doing quote-unquote punk stuff it still sticks with them the most yeah um, and i think that's great and yeah um i'm i'm stoked <laughs> Oh, yeah. And I've really enjoyed talking with you so much. This has been great, you know, just getting a chance to tell stories and yeah. laugh about stuff. Like, I love it. Oh, yeah, totally. And I, I love hearing stories about a time when I was, you know, too young to know what was what. I mean, I was I was a kid when all of your when all of your stories were going on. But it's, it's just really cool to hear about them. Yeah. Cool. Um, Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to come um, visit soon. Oh, hell well, yes. Well, once COVID-19 is no longer an issue. If if that's ever <laughs> if, oh my if, if that's ever a possibility. Seriously. Uh, God damn. <laughs> um before you go, um yeah. before we before we chatted, um I had you pick five bands that have inspired you. Yeah, over I think years. And I think number one was Taylor Swift, right? Yes, absolutely. Just kidding. <laughs> I love her. Oh, you know what? Me too. There is nothing wrong with that. I've I've learned that guilty pleasures are bullshit and you should just embrace what you love. And I'm sorry, but Taylor Swift is a great artist. She is an amazing artist. Yes. Uh, some of the other the other bands that, you, that were on your list uh, were Fugazi, the Subhumans. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming the English Subhumans, the yep. only one that matters. 
Yes, totally. Uh, I agree with that. <laughs> Rollins Band, Avail, and Crass. Um, before we go, can you just tell me uh, a little bit about why you picked those? Um, Rollins Band was, for me, like that first album, I think, Lifetime. Um, it's like that influenced my vocal style, like just how raw and visceral and intense that was just amazing and I had interviewed Henry Rollins when I was like 18 and young little punk rocker and and just him as a person so hyper focused like Mm -hmm. when he and I were talking there was literally nothing else in that room that mattered to him at all I've never met anybody that had that kind of intense focus where you were just like in this spotlight and then you know like and it was great like it was a such a great interview um so yeah so just him as a person and the music was just really powerful uh and then avail um like that kind of energy in a live band like their recordings are great and I actually recorded with on Dixie. Um, that's me oh. singing Little Pink Houses and Model. Um, and uh, it was really their live shows, though, where they just came to life. Like, you can't capture that on record. You know, that's really just yeah. something. If you haven't seen Avail live back in the day, then you can listen to the records and the records are great, but it was really just those live shows that just were incredible. Um, nice. Yeah. And then Fugazi, of course. Of Ian. course. Of course. Of course. I yeah. love Ian. I mean, Ian's amazing. I mean, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're just, yeah, such heartfelt, great people and, the mute i just that the first album especially just love that mm-hmm. first album and i actually do you want to hear my funny fugazi story yes of course so they were playing an outdoor show in virginia in richmond virginia when i lived there mm-hmm. and so i was up on stage behind um i think ian's equipment or something and they start playing suggestion and i was just like oh my god they're playing suggestion and so they get to a part in the song and they keep re- like went to this musical part and they keep mm-hmm. repeating and keep like playing it over and over. And then finally Ian walks over and he's still playing and he looks at me and he goes, if you don't come out and start singing right now, we're going to stop playing the song. <laughs> and I look at him and I just go, and I just yelled, I forgot the words. Oh, I was no. So it just out of my mind. The second he said that, I mean, I know this song so well, but the second he said that, I was just, like, gone. And he looks at me, and he's all like, oh, my gosh. He kind of rolled his eyes, and he goes, walks back over to the microphone, and he starts going, there lays no reward. And I was like, there we go. And I run out, and I grab the microphone, and then I sang the rest of the song with them. But I just, it was so funny that he was just like, oh, I can't believe she forgot the words. Okay. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I could totally, I'm, I'm totally seeing that in my mind. And yeah, uh, it was just like on the spot, you know, all of a sudden <laughs> I was just like, oh my gosh, okay, I completely have just forgotten. It just all went out of my head, you know. 
Um, so yeah, so they just a huge influence. Um, we already talked about Taylor Swift, and yes. then what was the other band? I'm so sorry. Uh, Subhumans and Crest. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, Subhumans, Crass, I the lyrics. I oh, just, yeah. You know, I, being 16, I mean, I remember being 16, newly into the punk scene, headphones on, plugged into the stereo with the lyric books right in front of me and just reading the lyrics and listening to the music at the same time over and over and over, you know, and just, yeah, yeah just so powerful and hearing things like that for the first time, reading lyrics like that for the first yeah. time and being 16 and just being like, I want to understand this. And this, I want to, you know, this resonates with me. This, I can feel this. This is true. These words are true to me, you know? Yeah. And I mean, from the cradle to the grave. Oh, yes. Epic songwriting and the lyrics, like it doesn't get, much better than that you know like and i remember when spitboy was playing with sis and fish in the united states we were touring with them and Mm -hmm. dick lucas and i had wandered off during the show and we were at some church or university or somewhere and there was a piano and we sit down and we're like playing chopsticks and we're playing this and then all of a sudden he starts playing susan strange and he starts, and I stopped playing anything, and he sang Susan Strange, though from beginning to end, the whole thing, and I was just like, this is amazing, like, this is a one-in-a-lifetime experience, because oh, when wow. is Dick Lucas ever going to have a piano at a show and able to play Susan Strange, you know, like? That's right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> never going to happen, yeah. and I was just, I was just like, this is magic, this is oh, incredible. wow. Yeah, because like. Yeah, to have someone, and especially, I think, especially with subhumans, to have, be so young and so influenced by these lyrics and this music, and then to meet them and have them be such good people. Yeah, it's like, totally. It all, like how we were talking about, it's like full circle, how we're talking about amoebics and what happened with Rob, mm-hmm. and then have something like subhumans or sis and fish but where it's that perfect marriage of amazing lyrics, amazing music, and amazing people. And no one became a Holocaust denier, which is just amazing. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Thank thank goodness. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there was no that. chance. Like, if that yeah. happened, I'd be like, the world is ending as we know it. Dick Lucas, what? You know? But, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and it's the same with Crass. I mean... Not so much as people. I didn't. I don't know them, but yeah. just the lyrics and how powerful the message was. You know, like the super strange at times music. Like they oh, yeah. were forging their own path and very unique. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They were like, "This is what we want to do. We don't care if it's if it fits this genre or not. We are going yeah. to do our own genre, and it's just yeah. crass and." My God, does it work? Yeah, amazing. <laughs> like, yeah, they were definitely an amazing band.
Simple man, baby, pays the thrill. 